as was mentioned previously, and certainly how thankful we each can be for the great blessing of God that permits us to assemble this morning, to do so with the freedom, with the luxury of the moment, and with the power of all that God has placed about you and me. It is the case I'd like to begin by expressing a great note of appreciation to the Pippin congregation, not only for your support during the gospel meeting I was asked to do at the Center Grove congregation, for your prayers, for your thoughts, but so many of you chose to invest one or more of your evenings to come and be a part of that meeting, to support it in all the ways that you were able to do. My heartfelt thanks to you. So, so powerful is the friendliness that you express, the presence of your encouragement. And my family and I are very thankful to be a part of a congregation that enjoys serving the Lord in the ways, certainly, that, that, that you do here. It is true, in addition to that, I would also make an additional announcement relative to, to that idea and point. Next Sunday, we'll be blessed with, again, some uh, sp other speakers besides myself. I've been invited to be a part of a gospel meeting at the Jericho Church of Christ in White County, and we'll be involved in that next Sunday. And the elders are already aware of that and already have scheduled for those to, to speak on, on the next occasion next Sunday. I would again invite your prayers, please, relative to that meeting, your considerations, because surely we know the Word of God is such that it is powerful to note about prayer, James 5.16. One final announcement relative to the visitors that have come our way today. Certainly we're always thankful and mindful that you've chosen to be with us. We do sincerely hope that the worship service will draw you as well as all of us nearer to what God would have us to do and be. But there is a particular gentleman, Brother William French, who's with us today. We at Pippin support, as you may well note, uh, a few months ago an article in the bulletin brought it before us so clearly, the Mountain View Church of Christ over in Granger County, Tennessee, the only congregation in that county, and we're certainly thankful for his presence today, and we hope certainly that things by way of growth, the blessing of God will be with that church at Mountain View. The lesson today, as you can see on the wall to my left, is entitled, Willing to Do His Will. Taken from a passage that Brother Matt read for us a moment ago in John, the seventh chapter, over the next few moments, I would invite you to develop with me some appreciations of that verse in ways that can have dramatic impact in your life and in mine. In particular, as we begin to notice these opening thoughts, much of our discussion today, quite frankly, will surround the word will in that verse, W-I-L-L, and that immediately takes us to a consideration of priorities. As you can see on this opening slide, the whole subject of priority is one that is certainly a fair one to consider. You'll notice in particular, isn't it true, that priorities are by and large those decisions those placements in life that quite frankly determine the structure, the order, the matter of your life and mine. In so doing, it's no wonder the Bible, at least in so many ways, has passages that call upon us to reflect on our priorities, to re-examine them, to in fact lay them against the mirror taught to us in the Word of God and to ask frankly and honestly, what about them? Are they in line with what God would have me to select as my priorities? It is for that reason that this morning the vitality, the needfulness, and the urgency of priorities will be the subject, frankly, based on John 7. This next slide begins with a definition. 
if called upon to at least state in a definitive way. So what do we mean by the word priority? I confess that we often hear the word in newspapers. We encounter it there. We may well hear it in newscasts and other commentaries. What, what does it mean? I suppose our sense would in fact be a strong one, but isn't it true that top statement seems to nail it before us in a way that leaves no question? The fact, the condition of having precedence, that is to say, either in order or in time or importance, furthermore, something given or meriting attention before competing alternatives. In other words, when there's a set of options, a set of positions or choices, if you please, priority has to dictate, doesn't it, the choice that you and I ultimately make. It is for that reason I think we each are well aware of the reality of priorities. An example may be in order. You and I each are well aware of the fact that around a house there seemingly is almost an untold number of tasks, chores, various elements and work that need to be accomplished. But isn't it true you and I recognize the needfulness of prioritizing them? Consider, for example, a Monday morning in a typical household in which parents are working and children are, are ready or getting ready for school. The hour is 6.30 in the morning. Parents are getting ready for work. Breakfast needs to be prepared. The kids need to eat. The bus is soon going to be here or the ride needs to prepare to take them to school. Dad and mom, one or the other, need to be getting ready for work. Soon it'll be time because one has to be at work, of course, on time. And so isn't it true that 6.30 on a Monday morning is not the most acceptable time to be dusting the books in the library of the house? It's not to say that chore isn't important. It's just that's not the time at which the needfulness of that chore needs to be done. 6.30, again, on that Monday morning is not the time to be dusting behind the refrigerator. It's not to say that's unimportant, but that's not the right time. You each then can see along with me, we're aware of how vital and significant these issues and priorities are. Have you ever heard someone make a statement, or maybe you or I have made it? I don't have time. It's almost as if we refer to time like something we can go to Lowe's and buy more of it. It's almost as if we refer to time as if we could by some means acquire an additional amount of it. When in fact that's not the proper viewpoint toward time, is it? Time is merely a means of measuring a duration. A means of measuring a certain allotment or interval. Isn't it true? Then we would be better to say, not that I don't have time, but my priorities have dictated a different choice for this interval, for this period of time. You could perhaps see in light of those things that statements like that remind us that isn't it still a truth? All of us have exactly the same amount of time. Every day has 24 hours on average. Every week has 168 hours on average. Every week has 10,080 minutes on average. That's an inviolable consideration, isn't it? We understand that. But isn't it true that understanding paints before us the fact that priorities dictate then how we will utilize, employ, 
and direct our attention during those 168 weekly hours. May I suggest to you the Word of God has much to say about the priorities that you and I select. I would invite you to make four considerations with me, each of them reasonably brief, as we think about our priorities. The first one is probably the most obvious. It is the one so clearly taught both in Old and New Testaments and the one that leaves us with the highest guiding viewpoint toward really the three thoughts that shall follow. But where does God rank in your priorities and in mine? Where should He rank? You'll notice some verses that read like these. You probably can race in your mind to the placements wherewith these are found. Wasn't it true that on one occasion God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me? That, of course, is the first of the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1. The ancient people of Israel were reminded that in each and in every consideration there was to be no competing gods to him. There were to be no competing issues of any variety towards service to the God of heaven. You'll remember that as those particular Ten Commandments proceed, as well as many other thoroughnesses of that old law of Moses, we encounter that verbatim statement made again in Deuteronomy 5, verse 9. One more time, the Ten Commandments are set before them, and that one is again uttered and echoed in the most powerful ways. As you and I come to the New Testament, wasn't it Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 33? And may you and I never forget the greatness of His statement. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Perhaps untold would nearly be the number of Bible studies or lessons that have at least made use of the first part of that verse, but may you and I note it again, for our Lord stated it. It's not as if it was an ancient council of wise men. It's not as if it was an ancient scholar of some character. This was the Son of God, and it was He who said, Seek, that's an active verb. It means, in essence, for you and me to pursue. Not to sit passively by and let it find us, but to pursue first. A matter in rank. A matter in hierarchy, a matter in priority, seek first, he said. Now, let's note the object of the seeking. Grammatically, we notice, seek ye first the kingdom of God. You'll notice that the word seek then carries with it an object, referring what is to be sought. It is the kingdom of God. You and I know that kingdom in this present era in which we live is the church, and thus we should seek the church, her doctrine, her matters, her truth, and of course the bedrock upon which that church is founded, the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is her head, isn't He? He is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence, Colossians 1.18. In fairness, we then notice that this thought challenges us to appreciate these verses as well. Jesus, also in that Sermon on the Mount, verse 24 of Matthew 6, He said, You cannot serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will cling to the one or hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. The Lord said that that choice is ultimately the most fundamental of all, for you cannot, no matter how hard you may try, 
no matter how much earnestness or desire may be within you, you cannot serve two masters. You will, in essence, have to place one of them higher in priority than the other. And that means you'll love one more than you love the other one. The Lord used that statement to highlight the love for this one will mean you despise this one. You love the one less. Not only that, you will cling to the one. You hold to the one. You, in fact, choose your direction in life following that one, while at the same time, of course, you will have a less love for the other. That's just the way God made us. In light of that thought, then our priorities will determine, of course, the ultimate directive of life. Maybe that directive is seen in Acts 10, 36. When in that marvelous sermon delivered before the household of Cornelius, Peter said, He, speaking of Christ, is Lord of all. Notice, of all, he said. It's not that he's Lord of most, Lord of many, Lord of much. He's Lord of all. And may you and I so live that we give the proper consideration toward the one who ultimately is the final Lord of all. In light of verses like these, isn't it then a self-evident fact, again, found in so many places, that half-hearted service to the Lord is an insult. Half-hearted service to God has never been acceptable. It's insulting to His greatness. It's insulting to His awesomeness. It's insulting to the very being that He is. In Deuteronomy 17.1, the people of ancient Israel were absolutely forbidden to offer to him sacrifices of animals that were maimed or sick or by some means unwhole. They had to give their best to him. In Malachi chapter 1, a similar refrain is presented before us. God did not accept less than their best, may I ask. Does he accept less than our best today? When you and I then make our selections of priority, when we make our choices, do we make sure that we direct our energies, our talents, our considerations, and the other features of our life directing the fact He must be first priority? That means if I'm to be the best husband, the best father, the best teacher, the best employee, if you please, I need to appreciate that I can only be so and in every other realm of life as well, if my priorities are in all those ways to serve the God of heaven. And of course the same in parallel will be true of each of us. Amazingly, as you'll notice at the bottom, that brings us to the text that Brother Matt read earlier. Heaven only waits, doesn't it, then for those that will to do the will of God. I particularly like the way the American Standard Translation rendered John 7, 17. It does highlight that beautiful double usage of the word will. In other words, you and I must will to do His will. And so may I ask, do I, do you will to do His will? In 1 Peter 4, verses 16 to 18, we notice in particular the last few verses of that chapter Remind us so well that, of course, the judgment of God awaits. And if those that are the children of God are those that shall meet judgment first, what about those that are disobedient? What about those that are ungodly? Doesn't that paint a fearful picture of that which awaits those that are disobedient, those that have not made God their top priority? May I then ask, 
as you and I seek to make application of this in a variety or host of ways, maybe one of the considerations would be this. What about my attendance at the services? May I ask? The Son of God went to a cross after he'd spent a sleepless night, after he'd been insulted, reviled, and blasphemed in unthinkable ways, he'd been smitten in the face, slapped on the back, crown of thorns pushed down on his head. You may remember he was then scourged in almost unthinkable whipping. And yet he still wasn't finished. He ultimately went to a cross, nails driven into his feet and hands, and as we well reflect upon his existence upon that cross, how painful was it? He even could admit in Matthew, did he not say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? May I ask, if the Son of God could endure all of that for me, can I not attend a few hours of services a week for him? The Bible study hours, the worship hours, if I'm staying home purposefully, with absolute volition and forethought, what does that say about my will? Is my will in line to do His will? Especially when He is said not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hebrews 10.25 I just ask those questions. How do you suppose God would look upon it? Where apparently does my priority lie if I purposely am choosing that is to say, my health is good, my mindset is fine, but I choose not to be here. That doesn't reflect well on my will. In fact, it reflects extraordinarily poorly, doesn't it? But you see, that priority only leads us then to think about some additional ones. After having this one sorted out, think with me about the aspect of priority as it relates to the choices then that you and I make and the motivation that must be in them. Isn't it true that our priorities then are choices, quite frankly, the pursuit then of these in an attitude of love? Our mind races maybe to the closing chapter of the book of Joshua. And it's a scene so very familiar, almost certainly the most well-known passage in all of the book of Joshua. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Joshua found himself not far from the end of his days in the flesh. He wasn't far from the time of his death. And yet his last, his parting, his most interesting in many ways and his most powerful statements to this people of Israel, choose you this day whom you'll serve. You have an obligation, he said. The God of heaven has blessed you mightily. You've been led out of Egypt. You've been given the land of Canaan. He's given you a bountiful land that can provide for your physical needs. You must choose this day who you'll serve. As Joshua made that statement to the ancient people of Israel, it has echoed in the mind of so many for ages, and it echoes in your mind and mine today, doesn't it? May I say that isn't it then clear? that what choices you and I make in life, if we don't continue to pursue them with passion, with enthusiasm, with a mindset of direction, it will soon almost certainly be the case that we will stop pursuing that choice. Isn't that the way life seems to be? To present it oppositely, think about something as exciting as sports. Most people have a favorite sport, or at least they're passionate about that element. We can only turn on the TV on most Saturdays 
or Sundays and see that point, can't we? Yesterday, there were many football stadiums around this country packed. There are several stadiums in this land that hold well over 100,000 people. And there was virtually standing room only. Because people are passionate about this. They love to see their team compete. They love to see them win especially. But they enjoy the atmosphere of the tailgating. They enjoy the atmosphere of the camaraderie. They're passionate about their team. They like to dress in school colors. They will often, of course, invest much money on behalf of the universities. They're passionate about it. And so Saturday after Saturday, season after season, they are to be found nowhere else than in full support. In many ways, the same thing is true of religion. If our heart is not here, we won't be here either. If our heart is not passionately in pursuit of God's will, then our will will not be lined up with His. We'll be doing our thing, going our way, following our pursuits rather than God's. I realize we don't gather in a football stadium and pass a football around as a part of worship because God hasn't authorized that. But what He has authorized is my heart in it. And do I enjoy it? I know we all do, but may we never lose sight of how valuable is that time. Worship services are not just arbitrary moments of a week, are they? They truly are highlight aspects that keep you and me grounded in what truly is most important. And so may we never forsake them. May we always understand their greatness, and maybe in light of that, it leads us to notice even the application in some other avenues as well. Think with me for a moment about the contribution. We have the express glory of being able to contribute to the work of God upon this earth. We understand how powerful, how mighty, and how truly fantastic God is. And in one sense of the word, He doesn't need my efforts. But in another sense, He has given me the prerogative, the privilege of working with Him to carry out His will on this earth. And shame on me if I shirk my duty, my responsibility. And so as the collection plate is passed, do I pass in a dollar while at the same time spending 20 at the movies? Do I pass in my 50 cents or my couple of dollars while at the same time I so happily and frivolously waste many times that much over the course of the week? It does cause us to ponder that, doesn't it? If I'm spending every month $40 for access to television, and over the course of a month I don't even give that much to God, what does that say? Where are my priorities? Maybe I like TV better than I like the service to the Lord. And if so, should I think that I'll make it to heaven? Should I think that my service will be the greatest glory to His cause? I realize one can take that certainly too far, but isn't the idea at least prompting? You and I are told, aren't we, that our priorities should reflect, of course, where our heart is. Didn't Jesus say, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your treasure and mine are laid up in heaven, there will be no better place we want to be than the services of the Lord, the ideas surrounding His work and His cause, and the grandeur and glory that attaches to it. Maybe in fairness, that brings us to a third priority. A third consideration. Isn't it true that our priorities 
if they're to be what they should be, should be predetermined. I realize there was one passage in that previous one. I Perhaps after I'd made the PowerPoint, think it might be better fitting in this section, and so I'd like to use it in just a moment in this placement. The predetermination of our priorities. I know that you recognized I didn't finish the verse that we alluded to earlier in Joshua 24. In verse 15, it is true that early in that verse he says, Choose you this day whom you'll serve, but then none of us would forget that the verse ends by saying, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua had made a predetermination. We aren't going to wait until the moment arises and then decide where our priorities will be. We will serve the Lord. And that honestly must still be the proper approach. Isn't it true? Life presents so much chaos. A day arises and so many things often developed you never saw coming. Health problems, issues, the car won't start. Suddenly the boss at work gives me a project I didn't see coming. And suddenly my mind goes every way but the way I would have thought it would. Life often develops in a day that way, doesn't it? I'm sure many of us, most of us, maybe all of us have been in that condition. But isn't it true if our priorities are already set, then there is a grounding, there's an anchor, there is something that cannot be moved, and that provides a stability, a framework to life that, quite frankly, is inescapably powerful. Quite often I've seen things on Wednesdays develop. Other individuals, when this situation arises, when this circumstance comes, they decide, well, in light of this, I guess I won't be going to Bible study tonight. Seems like a statement of priority indirectly has been made. But if there's already an anchor that this is a priority, and this other situation will have to wait, either until later tonight or maybe tomorrow, but isn't it interesting that that framework I've often found so meaningful to myself and my family? For it means there are certain things that are non-negotiable. We live in a world of negotiation, a world of compromise. But there are some things, quite frankly, that should be non-negotiable in your life and mine. Again, so long as health matters permit or other things of which we have control, priorities must be predetermined. I'm thankful for Joshua's predetermination, and I'm certainly thankful that each of us can make similar wise decisions. May I ask how well we might apply that to some other attributes of the Christian life? Think about Daniel. He had a priority, did he not? Three times a day he prayed, despite the opposition of what the courts and the law of the land said. There was a man of priority and a man who would not be moved or swayed from them. I wouldn't anywhere claim to be the strong person that, Joshua, that Daniel was in that regard, but I'm, I'd like to work on it, trying to do so. Maybe many of us are. But if we move in that direction, doesn't that bring a tranquility, a solace, an ease to life that truly is a grand blessing of peacefulness? You and I serve the gospel of peace, Romans 10, 15. As we serve the God of God using the power of that gospel, doesn't it help us see that we too could pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. 
you and I too can appreciate we'll not faint if we're given to prayer, Luke 18, 1. Maybe in fairness that brings us to the final observation of the lesson. And as we do that, that mention of Mary. You remember that maybe one of the finest statements of the New Testament about priority is found as we think about Martha and Mary. In Luke 10, verses 38 and following, Jesus came to Bethany, that town, that place wherein Mary and Martha dwelled. And we remember that on this occasion, the Lord, in fact, you could say, blessed highly that characteristic of her house by coming to be with them. Think how you'd react if Jesus came to be a visitor in your house. I must admit, I find it difficult to fathom how I would try to react. And I'm sure maybe you're in the same position. We'd want everything just perfect, everything properly and regularly oriented. Martha was trying to do that. The text informs us she was striving to serve. Under most circumstances, she was doing the very thing that a lady, a woman, would be expected to do, trying to provide a meal, at least a matter of provision for those guests that had come to her house. It says Mar that Mary wasn't helping her. Mary was sitting at her feet, uh, at the feet of Jesus, listening. Mary was learning. Again, on most occasions, Martha was doing the very thing that you would expect. Mary was shirking her responsibility. But Jesus on this occasion said, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken from her. Luke 10, verse, verse 41. You see, Mary wanted to learn from the Master. She wanted to learn from the lips of the greatest of all. And she took the occasion to do so. Her priority on that occasion was exactly right. Jesus said that it was. Doesn't that tell us that sometimes you and I must carefully consider our priorities? Am I choosing like Martha, the thing that most of the time would be best, but right now it's not? In light of that, look at some of these considerations, the last element of the lesson this morning. Isn't it true that in so many ways, the proper setting of our priorities then forestalls future problems, future difficulties, future considerations that can ultimately lead to so many difficulties. For instance, right now, think about a young family, a father and a mother with perhaps young children in a household. If those children grow up seeing dad and mom committed to the services of the church and will not miss seemingly unless circumstances are dire, that young child begins to appreciate that fact, begins to see what dad and mom see. He or she begins to rise and to grow from an early age, appreciating that there are some non-negotiable things in life and that he or she as well can understand what that means. So when the age of 16 comes, the age of 17 comes, and his or her friends want to go to the beach and to avoid a service on Sunday, or at least to give it no thought, this youngster will certainly not do that. He or she will know there's a place I must be, a consideration that I must give, and a non-negotiable service that I must render. The age of 23 arrives. That same youngster, now a young man or woman, 
just graduated from college and all the thrill of a new job is upon him or her. Perhaps moved into a new house, bought a new car, arrived at a new location and station in life. Suddenly now, so many considerations and my newfound friends in the community like to play golf on Sunday. Oh, but I can't do that. I can play with you on Saturday afternoon. I can play with you on a Friday afternoon since I get out of work a little early, but I cannot on Sunday morning. You see the idea. What was ingrained in the mind of that youngster from the age of 1, 2, 6, 10, 13 now cannot be, cannot be replaced. As we come to one of the last thoughts in the lesson, I'm reminded of, of a poem that I encountered many years ago. Seems to be one that helps us as parents and grandparents appreciate this matter in priority. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day. And as my fingers pressed it still, it yielded move to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore, and I could change him nevermore. May you and I as parents and as older ones, influential of youngsters, never forget that their little heart is yielding in plastic now. But as they arrive older in life, it'll not be nearly so plastic. May we mold them while we have the opportunity. And may our priorities reflect in them some truths such as those at the bottom of that slide. The powerful consideration of the Word of God. May they learn to appreciate it in us so that they too will learn to understand its greatness. Preach the word, Paul told Timothy, in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. And in the Old Testament do we not read, O how love I thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Psalm 119 verse 97. We also notice in verse 105 of that same chapter, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What about your priorities today? And as we conclude the lesson, I would ask that you revisit with me that text that we started it with in John 7, verse 17. If any man will to do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God. Are you and I? willing to do His will. It is a matter of choice. He won't force me to do His will. He won't force you to do it. He begs you. He pleads with you. He implores you. But He won't force you. If you will to do His will, the blessings in this life will be untold and the blessings in life beyond will be indescribable. May we each then will to do His will. And if today you have found yourself not willing to do His will, Maybe to this point in life, though the plan of salvation you have known, you've understood the elements involved, but you have not attended to them. May I ask why? If Jesus were here in person, he could ask you why. What would you say to him? He has said, except you believe that I am he, you shall die in your sins, John 8, 24. He did say that under the matter of Luke 13, verse 3, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Did he not say, Except you confess me before men, I'll deny you before the Father in heaven. 
We read that, of course, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and following. And he also said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So have you believed? Have you repented? Have you confessed? Have you been baptized? If not, why not? If you have been baptized and thus became a member of the body of Christ, but at this very moment, at this very hour, you know your priorities over the course of time and years are not what they once were and what are not what you know they need to be because you're not willing to do His will. Why not come back to your first love? The law of pardon, the second law of pardon is offered to you. If we could be of assistance in praying for you for forgiveness of sins known publicly, we'd be delighted to do it. If today it would be the will of your heart to come in a public way and make an answer to the requests of God in either of these ways, won't you come even now while together we stand and sing?